So product market fit to me is when you reach the point where you prove out the business model working in some small scale. And the only thing left to do is now, you know, pour the accelerant. I mean, with the rocket fuel, for some, for some that will be raising a big round of funding and then starting to invest in growth. And growth requires investment because the payoff times are oftentimes you know, not immediate. So you need investment to carry you through that growth cycle. So to me, that's what product market fit looks like. Hey, it's Matt. And this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Hey, hey, everyone. So today's guest is Ash Mariah, who has a long history in the startup world. Uh, he's actually created a product called LeanStack, which helps people who are interested in building products uh, build them more successfully and, and allows them to gain traction much, much more quickly than you would normally be able to accomplish those types of things. So, so normally when most people launch a product, they sort of go out and test this and test that and try that. And you know, you're going to run into stumbling blocks and roadblocks all along the way. What Ash has basically done is compiled the learnings that he's had in more than a decade of launching different products into a process that allows people to 10x their traction in 12, in 12 months uh, and validate and scale their ideas very, very quickly. So if you're someone who's looking for a, a process, a step-by-step -step system that takes your idea and validates it and then allows you to shortcut a lot of the shortcomings and the roadblocks that you normally have, you may want to check out uh, his products and listen to this uh, podcast episode to be able to learn a little bit more from Ash's experience. And with that, we will get on with the show. I always like to start with a bit of my background, just uh, so I've never really lived in a, in a home country, if I say that I've always been an expat. So I grew up in Nigeria. My parents are from India originally. And so we didn't have a lot of extended family, but we had lots of friends. So we, I grew up in a very kind of social environment. So dinner tables were always dinner with immediate family, or we had a lot of, we had a lot of social gatherings even in the middle of the week. So we'd have, we'd have dinners with, with other folks. Very cool, very cool. And so when you were growing up, did you have any type of projects that you started to start your entrepreneurial journey off? Were you selling anything at school or anything like that? Yeah, so I, I was always, I, got, I think I got more interested in entrepreneurship when I was kind of late in my high school, maybe getting into university. Before that, again, just a bit stereotypical, but being born to Indian parents, you were very academic. So to me, it was very much about kind of school and get good grades. And, and that's kind of the, the education I, I had growing up. But I was always interested. I think one of the things I learned fairly quickly in school that I could learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. And so kind of use that to, in some ways, hack, <laughs> hack, hack my tests. And so I was getting good grades. And so I had a lot of free time. And so I got very excited about kind of business. One of the things I got into was reading a lot of business books mm -hmm. uh, and I was an engineering student, was reading a lot of that. So that's maybe how I got in, intrigued or interested. And then again, hearing stories of famous entrepreneurs of the time and what they were doing, I was always fascinated with 
building something and I call it the, the artist phase of entrepreneurship. It's like building something cool, you know, making a dent in the universe. All those things were very aspirationally uh, exciting for me back then. Mm-hmm. Who are you following? What types of people were you reading back then? Who are some of your... Yeah, so, so again, being, being more a technologist, I, I kind of got to see folks like Bill Gates uh, back then, you know, early days of Microsoft, and then even Steve Jobs, kind of early days of, of that, he's like in the, in the 80s. And so just seeing all of that, I had a personal computer of my own in a very early, so it was all, all that was very exciting, exciting to me. And it was like one day, you know, it'll be cool to grow up and, and do things like that. Mm-hmm. And and so you do have a software background. So you you were a programmer that's for a number of different companies. Did you ever tinker around with different ideas when you were working at any of these other companies? Did something kind of click and you started exploring you know these different options that having a programming background could yeah. have afforded you? So the first thing I would say is that I didn't actually go to school for programming. I kind of taught myself that. Oh, wow. And it was and it was actually part of that tinkering, I guess, curiosity that got me. So I, I was going to school for a very pure engineering. It was electrical engineering. And I was working as an intern in this power company. And I was really bored out of my mind because I, I've always been more of an abstract thinker. And my boss kind of put me on this little project, like small programming scripting project. And that's where I said, you know, sure, I'll do it. And I learned enough to get it done. And he saw that I got, you know, really excited by that. So he put, sent me down to the basement to go work with this other person who was working on some software. And that was my first real, you know, project, I would say, where I got to do that. And I loved it. So when I went back to school, I did look up some classes, you know, went online and just started tinkering and building a lot of stuff. And that's where like maybe on the side, even while I was in university, there was a lot of tinkering, you know, made friends with computer science students and just started sharing ideas and just working on projects back then. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so what was the first time when you started to step out on your own and do your own types of projects? Yeah, so I was keen, even in university, and I even started asking. So again, I was an international student, so didn't really have citizenship back then. And so for me, it was important to understand how to go about like legally forming a company. I was all for doing a startup. And some of the advice I got from folks back then is you got you to wait, you know, you've got to get just some immigration stuff in, in order. And so I did the next best thing is I used a number of kind of internship opportunities. Uh, the university I was in had that as a requirement. So you had to do this to graduate. So I used that as an opportunity to work in this time more, you know, software oriented things, got some training there. And then as soon as I graduated, I joined a startup as quickly as I could. So I didn't kind of venture out on my own, but I had, I did the next best thing, which is let's go in and join a startup. Mm-hmm. And that in hindsight was probably a great experience. And I advise a lot of people who are you know, exploring to do that because you get to see just how uncertain and, and chaotic that environment can be. And then you also learn in some ways on other people's dimes. So the founders of the company were really the ones taking a lot of that, the brunt of the risk. And certainly the project that I started with them, the first one failed, the second one almost failed, and then we got bought. So there was quite a, it was a happy ending at the end, but just that mm-hmm. whole, that whole cycle was able, I was able to witness that as a, as a student kind of learner versus being in the business. Mm-hmm. And was it, did the first, I guess the first one that failed, was that because you didn't have a product market fit? Was that kind of some of the catalyst that made you launch into the, the areas that you did launch into, do you feel? 
Yeah, so it, it was, I would say there was, absolutely, there was, there was some of that. I, I would, so the reason I got recruited in the first place is I got involved in some early, uh, this is kind of telecommunications, and when we were porting numbers, local number portability, keeping your phone number, I got involved in, in an early project uh, right out of school in one of my internships where I kind of became a, a resident expert on, on how to do that. So this startup recruited me for that purpose. And so they had kind of all the right intent, which is let's capitalize on this big thing happening in the telecom industry. Everyone needs to port numbers. Let's build a product and a system. But looking at it now back, uh, looking at it back uh, from now, it was very much of a standard playbook of let's spend a year, two years kind of building this product and then take it to market and sell it. And yes, along the way, we didn't build, we built what was per spec, but other competitors came in and built better products than we did. So we could not get product market fit. Interesting, interesting. So talk about some of your first experiences. Let's see, so you are, you founded Wired Reach, correct? Yeah. What was the target market for Wired Reach? What, what types of industries or customers were you serving with that? Yeah, so it was inspired by a triggering event, not unlike the one we're going through, although it's the one we're going through now. The, the pandemic crisis is a much bigger global kind of thing that's happening. But when I started my company was right after 9-11. Um, and part of the, the thing that happened there, a number of things. One, lots of companies were, even the company that bought us, you know, gave us a choice. We could either all relocate to headquarters, which was in Boston, um, I was in Dallas at the time or, or kind of take a package and, and leave. And so I chose to take the package because I was just not in a position to relocate. So all that was happening. But what I saw was a lot of the folks that I knew, all my friends had all been displaced, were kind of all moving. And so the idea of building a social network before it was even called that just popped in my head one day. It's like the idea spark. And I watched the movie Six Degrees of Separation. Mm -hmm. know, I know that Will Smith. And so that was where it was just fascinating, you know, how connected are we? And it came from a networking, you know, telecom background. So it's like, I can build something to connect people up. And that was the spark of the idea. So that was really how I got started. I mean, I shared this. And so again, this is back you know, the artist phase of, I need to build something cool and amazing. And we can't tell anyone because then the idea will get stolen. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, shared this with my fiance who became my, you know, eventually was my wife. But, you know, kind of shared it with her, shared it with some very close friends. Um, and they all thought it was a great idea. And they were like, that would, that would be amazing. So go do it. And so I took a lot of the savings and stocks that I had received from the previous exit, invested that into this company, recruited some folks, and we spent nine months kind of building something. So our, our audience was to be determined. It was really everyone <laughs> that could possibly want to connect with everyone else, which again, in hindsight, that's just too broad of a segment. But those are all things I didn't know at the time. And you mentioned sharing of ideas. Do you have a different perspective on that today? If you have an idea, is it still very closely guarded to the chest at first? Or is it, do you feel yeah. that it's a little bit better to, to talk about things? So absolutely. So ideas are best when they're shared because we want ideas to spread. The mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs, innovators make is they think the idea is the secret sauce, is the solution, is how they do something. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that you need to share ideas with customers and customers at the end of the day want to eat the sausage. They don't care how the sausage is made, right? So they don't really care about the algorithms and the secret sauce behind it. They just want the result or the outcome. 
And that part can be shared and should be shared very early on because for most ideas, the challenge is getting attention. If I come to you and say, I can do this, and you say, so what, and don't, you know, don't bat an eye, then I haven't gotten your attention. And no matter what I do, I'll never get you to buy my product. So the first battle really is, how do we share an idea so that we can get one's attention? And that requires a different kind of sharing. So we share maybe the value proposition or what's different about the idea. We might talk about a problem that a customer is struggling with. Um, those would be interesting. So even going back to the social network, you know, Facebook nailed this. They came, they were not the first social network, but they went on a college campus and said, you know, most of you student, students want to talk to each other. You're stuck in class. We can give you a platform where you can do this. We can gossip, you can put stuff online. And it just took off, right? So it was more about what people want to do versus the idea, the, the solution piece of it itself. Got it, got it. So around 2010 or so, you started LeanStack. Uh, what was the catalyst for, for LeanStack? Yeah, so, so maybe just since we've been going with the timeline, so Wiredreach was around 2003, 2004. And so there was about a six or seven kind of year period before LeanStack. So Wiredreach kind of went on. And I went through different phases of evolution, evolution in my thinking. So it, it, in the beginning, it was a lot about the artist mode. Let's just build something amazing. And I spent you know, a year and a half doing that and realized that, again, we were not essentially hitting the market right. And we were building things that weren't working. But then realize that even as an artist, you have to be able to sell your art. Otherwise, you starve and, you know, and your ideas don't go any further. So I took what I had and I began to evolve it into smaller niches. And so we took this big social networking idea and turned it into a collaboration app. We got you know, graphic designers and folks. So it was kind of more narrow focus, kind of a niche focus. But we got some headway and some runway that way. But even then, I had launched maybe three products along the way and one of them really took off the other two didn't and i was at being this introspective engineer always excited interested in cracking the code or cracking the process what's different every idea starts out amazing but what you know what makes it amazing at the end how do you get there so around 2009 2010 this is where folks like eric reese and steve blank some of your, your listeners might have heard those names who's the author of the lean startup um, started sharing some of his ideas and his lessons learned. It sounded very similar in story, which is we had this great, amazing idea, but we are, you know, we didn't build an amazing product in the first shot. It took many iterations. So that was what was happening around 2009, 2010, kind of digging deeper into what could be a, a repeatable process for launching products. And that eventually sparked into what became kind of lean stack. So it was more of a introspective look at the process of launching products and then trying to codify something that was more repeatable and systematic than what I'd been doing, which is just really throwing a bunch of stuff on the wall and, and seeing, seeing what stays. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now did LeanStack come first before your books or did you publish the <laughs> books or after LeanStack? Yeah, so it's, it's, and this is what we also see a lot happening today is that a lot of projects start off as side projects, a lot of companies start off as side projects. So the true evolution of LeanStack really came from a blog that I started writing while I was running Wired Reach. So I was running Wired Reach and I began blogging about some of these lessons learned and my experiences and learnings. That turned into a small audience and the lean startup movement started to pick up. 
and I started spending more time you know, speaking and going into conferences. Along the way, some readers suggest, you know, suggested to me that I take some of my posts and write a book. And after some convincing and thinking of my own, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And it's in that process that other tools got developed. So one of the tools I built was Lean Canvas, which is a one-page you know, business planning or business modeling tool. And that took off. And so I saw all of a sudden a lot of traction, my side project than my core business. My core business was running just fine, but there was a lot of excitement here. And that was a, so for me, that was kind of looking at both sides. And even my advisors would tell me that it looks like you're very passionate about this stuff, the, the kind of this business modeling stuff. Maybe you should consider doing that and sell, sell your core business. And so it took, it took, it was a journey that I had to go through, but it was about maybe six, nine months later, I sold my, I sold off Wired Reach and then went off and did LeanStack. So technically LeanStack was founded after the book got published, after even Lean Canvas got built. But if I look at it from the origin story, it was really all in this, in this blogging and kind of side project of, of, uh, of learning that was the, the inception of LeanStack. And your books have obviously done very, very well. Can you talk about some of the, the techniques that you talk about in your books, especially around maybe helping a new business or someone who's thinking about getting into uh, their own business, especially yeah. because of the time that we're in? What types of advice would you give someone who's thinking about doing that? Yeah, on their own. So I would say that one of the top reasons that I see products fail today is going back to, again, some of the stories I've already shared is building something that nobody wants or building something that just a few people want. And then the bigger question is, why does this happen? Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. And then a bigger question is, why does this happen? And that is that when an entrepreneur sees an opportunity, we quickly gravitate towards a solution. We, we might say, okay, there's a problem in the market, let's go build this thing. And we spend every waking hour trying to bring the solution to life. Most of our solutions are not going to work. And I'm not saying that statistically, you can look at lots of even startups and products. It takes 
usually two or three iterations and sometimes drastic pivots to make the thing really work. So most first solutions don't work. And if you spend a lot of time building that, that's where we lose time. We get late to market. We may you know, run out of resources and kind of give up. So those are all, all the symptoms and kind of lead to uh, those things failing. So what we do it today is we tell people that the world has changed. Today, it's cheaper and faster to build products. That's not the risky part. The risky part is really uncovering the right customer problems to go after. And so we kind of flip this. And one of the, the mantras that we teach is uh, basically love the problem, not your solution. So if you can put yourself, identify a customer segment, put yourself in, immerse yourself in their world and prioritize just one or two problems worth solving, and we'll get some evidence that these aren't really worth solving and there are techniques for doing this, you put yourself in a much better place to then find solutions that could potentially get their attention, could at least get your foot in the door. And from there, you evolve into something much, much bigger. So that's kind of a nutshell of what we teach. And the two books are really a bunch of tactics and techniques and tools for getting you through that discovery process and essentially building something that customers essentially want. And I would assume that based on your previous history, that you probably would suggest niching it down to specific types of users as well, rather than saying, we've got this great thing for anybody to use. Absolutely. So when you try to market to everyone, you sell to no one. Your message gets so watered down that people might even say, oh, great idea, but they're just politely lying to you. You know, It's like, go do your thing, but it's not for me, it's for everyone else, but everyone else is no one. So absolutely. And so there's a big emphasis kind of niching down, but we even use the term early adopter. An early adopter is someone who is as visionary as the entrepreneur because they understand the problem. They want a solution. They don't know what the solution might be, but they want it. And a good indicator of an early adopter is someone who has been triggered. So someone who has been triggered to look for a solution. That's, so now we also teach triggering events. So I mentioned the triggering event with 9-11. Today we're going through this pandemic crisis. A lot of old solutions have broken. Um, you know, we are here you know, using video conferencing. A lot of people are being forced to go remote and virtual because face-to-face meetings aren't happening. So that creates opportunity. So that's, again, an example of a triggering event where now all of a sudden the status quo is no longer an option. So we need to look for a new way to do things. And that's where entrepreneurship really shines. Mm-hmm. So that's how you find early adopters. That's how you find these niches. It doesn't have to be a big triggering event like a pandemic. It could just be regulation change, you know, we had in Europe GDPR come through last year and lots of businesses had to comply and and do all these things. That's an example of things. When people have, you know, their first child in the house, when they become parents, that's an example of a triggering event. All of a sudden, what used to work with no children in the house will no longer work when you have a baby. And so it creates lots of opportunity for for selling or for for creating problem solutions for that, that environment. And do your methods and the techniques that you teach work for pretty well any types of products? Obviously, you have a, a technology background. Would it work for a physical product or you know, maybe even some type of a service type company? Does it, does it work for pretty well anyone? Yeah, so, so I, I was skeptical. So the, in the very beginning, when I was first writing, I actually even had a disclaimer saying this, you know, I'm a technologist, I've tested this on my products, and so use at your own risk. But I got invited, and one of the things that I, I learned is that people would invite me in, and I was giving talks, and even some sometimes real estate audiences, but you know, biotech and sciences, and I was very nervous doing those because I, again, knew that I was coming from this digital background, 
But what I began to learn over the course of several months and even years is that what we were really teaching was a meta language. You know, all businesses have customers, customers have problems, we have to build solutions, we have to market and talk about value propositions. And those are the tools that I was essentially using and teaching. And so over the years, we began to broaden, you know, at LeanStack, we began to broaden the kinds of customers we worked with. And fast forward to today, we have worked with a very wide array of folks that are doing services, businesses, low tech, high tech, restaurant, doesn't matter. So it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, if you have customers and problems and there's competition, you can apply the same techniques. Principles are the same. The tactics will, will oftentimes be different. So trying to build a hardware-based company where cycle times are longer will require some different tactics than maybe doing a B2C company like a Facebook. So some tactics will be different, but the principles tend to stay uh, more or less the same. Mm -hmm. And do you have any insight into the average amount of time to, I, I believe that you really focus in on product market fit. Do you have any insights into, you know, I'm going to do a physical uh, product company and I should expect to have product market fit by this time. And if it's a service-based yeah. company, it should be about this time. Is there, are there any general rules of thumb that you've learned? Yeah. So through running uh, by this point, you know, thousands of, of startups and products through, we actually break the milestones into three stages. So we have before product market fit, we talk about problem solution fit. And this is where the objective there is going and convincing yourself that you have a problem worth solving. So you've got the customer segment, the niche customer segment identified. You can identify a clear problem they're willing to spend money on. And you can go and demo them something where you can even oftentimes get advanced payments. So that's what we call problem solution fit. And that irrespective of product domain, we find three months to be enough time to go through that cycle once. So after that, you will know with evidence whether there is something here or not. And to me, that's the first step. So I had spent nine months in my previous endeavors, you know, building something and then trying to sell it. Now we try to sell before we build. So that's kind of the three month cycle. If you can do that, you're in a much stronger foundation because you're actually getting customers. You know the customers are there. You now have to build this thing. So you have to make sure, of course, you can build it. Feasibility is possible. So there are some checks that you have to put in place. But from that point on, from that three-month point, we find that on average, teams take about 24 months. So about two years is the magic moment. And again, irrespective of whether it's a hardware or a, or a software product, 20, two years is about the average time that people take to hit product market fit. Now, some products could be, it's an average, or some could be a bit longer, some could be a bit shorter, but that tends to be kind of around, to answer your question, kind of the average time frame we've seen. Interesting. Okay. And I guess define what you would say is product market fit. You know, two years down the road, we, we've achieved this product market fit. Does that, obviously that means that we have identified the specific user. Is that, is there a, an income benchmark that, you know, kind of justifies yeah. that or just, I yeah. guess, talk a little, little bit about that. Sure. So if you break the three stages, I, I didn't mention the, the last stage. So, so, so the first stage is that problem solution fit, which is before jumping all in. So, you know, do we have something worth a problem worth solving a customer, a market worth going after some of that requires, you know, doing some internal baselining of what does success look like? So that's an important first step is that it's sometimes I find people just jump into an idea which looks promising and then six months later they find it's too small a market for their ambition or they'll never get investors because investors don't want to fund these small, small ideas. 
So right from the start, we encourage people in their business modeling exercise to think of a minimum success criteria. So that helps them figure out what problem, what size of a problem, you know, will satisfy their ambition. So that's kind of the pre-work. Then product market fit is that march towards showing that you can build something, showing that you can reach repeatability in the business. Um, and repeatability requires you to pass through break-even, start to see signs of profitability even. So you're kind of proving out that there is this repeatable customer segment, there's this problem, our solution is working. We now are ready to scale. And scale is that third stage. So product market fit to me is when you reach the point where you prove out the business model working in some small scale. And the only thing left to do is now, you know, pour the accelerant. I mean, with the rocket fuel, for some, for some that will be raising a big round of funding and then starting to invest in growth. And growth requires investment because the payoff times are oftentimes you know, not immediate. So you need investment to carry you through that growth cycle. So to me, that's what product market fit looks like. And if we work with teams that are bootstrapping, at that point, they choose profitability over growth. So they might then kind of hunker down and try to improve their marketing, improve their channels, try to raise prices or experiment with pricing, you know, find the optimal price, price point. So those are kind of the, the forks in the road. So it's either pursuing growth or profit, but product market fit is proving out the business model in some small scale. Maybe to illustrate that real quick, I used Facebook just a little bit early on, but the early days of Facebook on one you know, college campus, Harvard, could have been problem solution fit. It's like we stumbled into something, but it's not yet repeatable. But going to the next four or five campuses, which they did, proved out product market fit. And they did it very, very fast. So that was not two years. This was like in the span of like you know, nine months, say. They could then go to their investors and paint a very big scale story because they had cracked the engine for how to bring students and get them highly engaged on the platform. They could show the business model working with advertisers. And so they hit product market fit very quickly. It was not two years. It was more like six to nine months. And they could raise a big round of funding and then just pour that all into rolling out the same thing. And of course, you're still improving product, but it's mostly focused on scale, scaling than it is on getting the product you know, right or better. That makes sense. So Ash, what, what would you say is next for you? What, what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to right now? Yeah, so our, our mission in LeanStack, um, and that's one of the reasons why I went in it all, all in, is again, starting to see how entrepreneurship had changed, starting to see that it was popping up in many places. Our mission is to take a lot of this body of knowledge that we have, uh, that we have kind of learned and collected ourselves and really teach it to others. And so LeanStack is essentially a platform that allows entrepreneurs to come in and either self, self-educate or find accelerators, find coaches, and use a lot of our tools to kind of accelerate their journey. So kind of our, our challenges today is really scaling that. We feel like we have hit product market fit with some of the tools that we have, but as with any of these three stages, it's never easy. There's always going to be challenges. So we are kind of entering that post product market fit stage, which is a lot of partnerships, a lot of scaling. We're working with accelerators and corporates and universities. You know, training and, and doing those kinds of things. So it's it's never uh, a, a straight road, but it's it's definitely a fun uh, it's definitely a fun fun journey to be on. That's awesome. And and if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the the best way to get, either get in touch with you or you know even learn a little bit more about LeanStack? 
Yeah, so leanstack.com is probably where I would just direct folks. That's that's where a lot of our, our content is and there's uh, you can sign up for free and a lot of our initial playbooks, which is what we call them for how to get started are all 100% free. So you can check them out. And there are some different mindsets. So it's not for everyone, but if some of these this kind of backwards thinking is a, like I like to call it counterintuitive thinking appeals to you, then you know check it out. And if it if it helps, then you can always kind of go deeper. My email is just ash at leanstack.com. So I'm very easy to find. And also I'm you know fairly active on, on Twitter and and places like Instagram. And it's just my my name, Ash Moria. So easy to find there too, or LinkedIn as well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this is fantastic. I appreciate the time and uh, I hope to, uh, to hear more from you in the future. We, uh, I'm sure there's plenty more that you guys can offer our listeners, uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper into some of the, uh, the techniques and that that you guys use. Uh, perhaps we can do another episode of uh, diving in a little bit deeper. So yeah, absolutely. would love to. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Matt. Excellent. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.